Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members at Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Nick J, Saul G, at Mindful Invest, Clay M, Jared W, Paul M, Andy J, Levi V, and Ken S. Due to the amount of questions received and time limitations, we're not able to cover all questions and subject matter for this episode. Joining us for the first time on the program today is Mr. Grant Isaac. Grant is the Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer at Cameco Corporation, the largest publicly traded nuclear fuel services provider that covers the uranium mining side through the fuel cycle. Through its proven tier one assets, Cameco has a reputation of being the preferred supplier for nuclear utilities globally. The company is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol CCJ and also on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol CCO. Mr. Isaac, welcome to the program. Are you staying warm in Saskatoon? Hi, Andrew. Uh, yes, uh, we've uh, had a little bit of a break in what was a punishingly cold start to February and lasted the entire month. So, you know, it, it's tough. We're here in the heart of Canada's uranium land and uh, it comes with a price. A bit of a cold reception, if you will, to kick off the year. How about we kick it off here, Grant, with just doing maybe a little bit of a introduction of you, but maybe just for the audience and maybe new people that are coming into this sector. Give us just your brief resume, Grant, if you will, of your background and also what do you do at Cameco? Yeah, I, happy to start there. I've been at Cameco since 2009. I joined after actually a, a career in, in a really weird uh, launch pad that was uh, in academia. I was a business school professor and a business school dean with a PhD in economics, and I had an opportunity to move across to Cameco in 2009 and obviously didn't have to think twice about that opportunity to do a bunch of different things. So I, as you noted, I, I am the chief financial officer of Cameco. So I have all those typical responsibilities, finance, tax, treasury, budgeting, enterprise risk management, SOX control, all that really critical stuff that a publicly traded company, any company needs to be involved in. I also have obviously the uh, corporate strategy responsibility, a bit unique, I would say I have global marketing as well. So the, the commercial, side of the business is is also the folks that I work with. Uh, and then on top of that, I, I have investor relations and I get to work with those folks. So it is quite a number of hats that I wear and uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Interesting background. And of course, you've been a follow of ours amongst many market participants going back a number of years and your intelligence is certainly appreciated and your understanding of this market is top shelf, Grant. Let's move into the market here. How is Cameco doing and what is your view of this market currently in 2023 and how things look this year and maybe even into 24? Yeah, great place to start. As an organization, it's important to set the context that, that Cameco has been part of every commercial cycle in the uranium nuclear fuel cycle for 40 years, 45 years. I mean, Cameco has been around for getting close to 40, but its predecessor companies We've seen it all. We've seen the highs. We've seen the lows many times. Each cycle 
has slightly different features, of course, slightly different causes. And what that combined experience tells us over and over again is that investors need to target uranium producers who understand that durable earnings doesn't come from thinking there's a spot market strategy in uranium. It comes from a producer who understands that this is an industry of term contracting. It's an industry where utilities have only very discretionary demand in the spot market. The rest of it is in the term market. You have to be a full participant in the term market. So in other words, marketing has to come first. You have to build the homes for your potential production or, or your available productive capacity. You've got to build those homes. From that, you then make the production decision. So we always talk about this. We're strategically aligned from a contracting point of view. We're patient with our long-term contracting. We look to build a balanced portfolio. We optimize that portfolio based upon uh, a number of variables. But of course, the most important one is pricing mechanism. And hopefully we can take a lot of time to discuss that. We want exposure to improving prices when we're at this point in a cycle like we've seen before. And from there, we're then operationally flexible. So then the operations are geared and the production is geared to meet those contract portfolio needs as you build them. We're very unique at this point in the cycle, Andrew, because there's a lot of growth coming to the nuclear industry and number of uh, things we can point to and unpack that as well. And we can do it from brownfield leverage. We've got an amazing suite of assets, tier one and tier two, already licensed, already permitted, gives us incredible upside production potential without a single greenfield dollar to spend. And that's just value creation for our investors, which we then take those moves in the commodity price and lock them in for longer term cash flow and earnings. And then you have to all do this from a, a risk managed financial perspective. Our, our cycles are long in our industry. The typical uranium cycle is a decade long. Uh, potash will cycle three times in a decade. Oil and gas will cycle four or five times in a decade. And, and a decade is just one cycle for us. So then you have to plan to be able to withstand the moments when the cycle is down in order to be positioned for when the cycle starts to turn. So that's what we're up to. That's the right way to do it. And then what's different this time? Well, we're looking at a cycle right now that uh, has many tailwinds. There's so much going on in the nuclear industry that's positive. Investors are absolutely correct in looking at it and being interested in it. We're just in the early innings. The contracting cycle is really just beginning, you know, maybe second inning, maybe starting to get toward the third. But there's a lot of game left here. And we've never started a uranium contracting cycle from this high of a uranium price before. So that looks pretty good to us. Yeah, Grant, I fully agree and echo a lot of your comments here. And I appreciate the update on how you see this market progressing here and the stage that we're in. I think that's uh, an important piece here. And a lot of the indicators we're looking for certainly point towards moving higher here. And also there's a lot of things that have just not come out yet that will be coming. So Grant, for the audience, let's get a flavor here because I think there's a lot of participants out there, as you know, that just may not be fully informed or just don't understand term contract dynamics. 
and how it can appear, not in all cases, however, Grant, because you and I both know that there's been companies that have signed not favorable pricing, but just the overall view that some participants can see that, well, you seem to be signing term contracting that could be below a price level that is below the cost of production. Would you just talk about that for a moment and clear up for the audience who doesn't understand the dynamics of market exposed contracts, floors and ceilings, because it looks like we need a small workshop and education from you on that. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Let me back it up into just a little bit of a market context first, the, you know, the, the, the why we do what we do. One of the most exciting pictures that, that an investor can see in the uranium space is the stock of demand. It's the so-called uncovered requirements of utilities. And, you know, trade tech as, a, as an industry reporter at UXC put this number out. And what it is, is it's that growing wedge of material that is required to run a reactor that hasn't yet been procured. And that uncovered requirements wedge, if you looked at it today and took the average of those two reporters, you, you have somewhere around 2.3 billion pounds of uranium between 2022 and 2040 that has not been purchased yet. And that's exciting. That's a stock of demand that is coming to the market. You know, utilities can defer and they can delay, but they cannot ultimately avoid the need to procure this material. So that's a pretty exciting thing to look at constantly. If investors are losing faith, if they're starting to say, you know, is this market really evolving? Just go to the uncovered requirements curve. But the curve often gets misunderstood. Sometimes investors will look at the uncovered requirements curve and they'll see in 2023 that utilities maybe have about 10 or 15 million pounds out of 180 that are uncovered and investors might conclude, well, okay, so there's a big stock of demand, but utilities don't need it today. So we're not going to see price formation for a couple of years. I'll pay attention later. Well, that's the wrong way to think about it. As I said earlier, utilities forward contract, even when you go out to 2030 and the world needs 200 million pounds to meet annual requirements. The uncovered requirements in 2030 will still only be like five or 10 million pounds because utilities today are actually buying for 2026 through 28 through 2030. Some are even buying into the 2030s today. So the uncovered requirements curve is a big stock of demand, but it gets addressed through this layering of term contracting. It's, it's also why it's important to avoid anybody who's trying to tell you to remain exposed to the spot market. Because if you think about it in last year's terms, 2022, uh, 60 million pounds-ish sold through the spot market. 13 was end-use demand from utilities. The rest was all churn. The spot market is incapable of absorbing significant volumes of uncommitted primary production. So if you're not in the game today of layering in contracts out into the future, you're missing the contracting cycle is, is what's happening. So that's the backdrop. Look at the stock of demand and then look at how that demand gets addressed right now through term contracts. So with that, we're in the term contract business. And what people need to understand is that a market-related term contract, which is what we like to sign at this point in the cycle. Why? Big stock of demand and we're not even at replacement rate contracting yet among the industry participants, all suggestive of stronger price formation ahead, 
we want to be market related. A term contract that we sign today that's market related is not being priced today. So what we're doing is we're committing to volumes and we're committing to product form and we're committing to a delivery pattern, but we're going to price it at time of delivery. Those are market exposed contracts. That's exactly what you want to do. You want to build up a portfolio at this time in the cycle where you're giving investors access to a commodity price that has moved. You're giving them leverage to future movements in the commodity price, and then not just playing a spot game, you're locking that in for longer tail cash flows and earnings. So those who look at our contracting today volumes and then simply say, but you're contracting at $50, they're absolutely not understanding the point. We're contracting today in a market that we expect to structurally go up and we want to be exposed to that. We can do that as a company because we have the licensed, permitted, brownfield leverage, the right origins, sovereign safe production. We are in a really uh, advantageous position to meet the needs of those utilities. And it's why, for example, in 2022, of the 114 million-ish pounds that were contracted in the term market across the industry, 80 million pounds was Cameco. So there's the incumbents advantage that you referenced earlier that we've talked about in the past, whereby utilities look at, uh, at producers and the reality is tier one producers are proven and tier one assets are demonstrated. They're not simply promised, not simply discovered. Utilities go to those who already have existing productive capacity. We're getting those volumes, but we're not pricing them today. We're retaining upside leverage to prices that we think will continue to move. The other end of the spectrum are base escalated prices. And we're not really interested in those kind of contracts today. A base escalated price would be around the term price. And then you argue with the utility over how it escalates over the life of the contract. But it really denies the upside move it creates incredible downside protection, but it denies you participation in the upside move. Others are obviously more interested in base escalated pricing. It's not us. We want that mar those market related price references. And as we layer in more volumes, we get more leverage to get better references with each turn of every contract. Grant, I don't have much to add other than thank you for the lecture on that. Well said. Some of these would be interested, speaking of the juniors, uh, because they're just desperate enough to get whatever they can get. But your position is, again, well demonstrated, and you're beating me up here because you covered off some other things that I want to unpack a little bit later. There's a few other things that I want to follow on here that we'll get back into the discussion of this a little bit later. But let's move on to Grant for a moment, the transaction with Brookfield Westinghouse and the key points that you'd like to make about the importance of that deal for the broad industry and also, of course, for Cameco. Yeah, I'm gonna drive you crazy here because I'm gonna keep backing up with each question you ask. We've always been uh, vertically integrated uh, in the nuclear fuel cycle. Unlike a lot of other commodities, it's not like we sell to a smelter or a metals exchange, and then we don't participate in anything that happens with the uranium afterwards. The nuclear fuel cycle is an integrated beast. And by the way, the same person who wants to buy uranium is the same person who needs to buy the conversion and needs to buy the enrichment and needs to buy the fabrication. And in many cases, it's also the same person that's got to buy the reactor services uh, as well. So 
it's all integrated uh, with the same uh, commercial team for our customers. And we've always been part of that. When Cameco was formed, it was the bundling of mining and milling assets with fuel fabrication assets geared towards the heavy water business. So the, the can-do reactors, the heavy water reactors that don't require enrichment. So we've always had the benefit of, yes, we're exposed to bigger moves that can happen in the uranium space, but there's volatility there. Conversion can have volatility and fabrication tends to have a lot less volatility, really de-risk cash flows. And it's that integrated strategy that has allowed us to be strategic in the past. Uh, at one point through the low of the previous it's 70% of our production shut in, in order to clean up this market, in order to buy in the spot market, in order to, to get rid of that surplus supply from, in many cases, folks who had productive assets and they didn't have a home, so they were dumping it into the spot market. So the one advantage was obviously we had our committed sales priced above the market, so we could buy, leave our pounds in the ground for a better day and sell into a committed contract portfolio with higher price references. But the other was the contribution from the fuel services division, the, the steadier business that comes from fabrication and reactor components. So with that backdrop, Westinghouse is an absolute no brainer for us. The opportunity to combine our already licensed, permitted, scarce mining and conversion assets that have brownfield leverage with Westinghouse's scarce, licensed, permitted assets with brownfield leverage um, was something we were going to pursue every day. So what we've effectively done is taken a highly successful integrated strategy and now added to it about half of the light water fleet globally. Those heavy water reactors, they're about 10% of the global fleet, less than 10% on a gigawatts of power production basis. You add in the light water reactors, you now have access to the entire global fleet. And, uh, and Westinghouse really is entwined uh, heavily in about half of the light water fleet globally. And, and so it's a really exciting opportunity to enhance the benefits that we've got from integration in the past uh, with a broader base of the global market. And to do that at a very unique time, at a very unique time when our industry is bifurcating geopolitically. When the markets that us and Westinghouse would have been competing in have changed dramatically, we suddenly have access to a Central and Eastern European market that never used to be addressable to us, but is now because the Russians are retreating or being forced to retreat from the Western market. And it's also simultaneously happening when France, which is another formidable competitor of ours and of Westinghouse's, a state-owned enterprise is kind of being summoned back home as the French government is focused on their nuclear fleet and focused on getting their current reactors up and running and, and focused on building 14 new reactors in France and getting ahead of the SMR game with the French nuclear policy. So we're seeing a, a Western landscape where our two big competitors, one's being forced out and, and the other is being drawn home leaving more space available for chemical and Westinghouse than we anticipated at the time of the acquisition. So with each passing day, we're just more and more excited uh, about this vertical integration strategy uh, and, and what it means for our investors 
and the final thing that I would add, because it was, I think, a, a reaction of some, that it somehow dilutes exposure to the uranium play. A, that's not the case. And B, here's the evidence. You've got the Energo Atom contract. You, you, we, we just uh, announced a, a very big full fleet contract with Energo Atom. That's a, a market that was captured by the Russians for many years, or actually for its entire history until now. Cameco has the full fleet deal for uranium and conversion. Westinghouse has the full fleet deal for fabrication. Westinghouse has the deal for new builds when and if they happen in the Ukraine. But here's the key to it. What the world needs right now in the West, in the Western sphere is conversion. So a uranium producer alone cannot drive conversion demand into their uranium portfolio. Whereas we can take the fact that we have the only North American operating conversion plant right now and take this unique conversion demand and drive it back into our uranium. So that's a UF6 deal. So yes, the pounds of uranium for Energo Atom are notable, but even more notable is how much conversion they're buying over the, the next 12 years. That integration pays huge dividends for our shareholders. A uranium only company would not have got that business. And much of the business that we've been doing in the past, uh, I would say year, the, the reason we did 80 of 114 is because uranium only companies are not capturing it because they can't offer the conversion along with it. So Westinghouse just absolutely enhances what has been an and and strategy because it's the same fuel buyer putting together with the product of uranium, a set of services to meet their needs in a world where dependence on Russia is now coming to an end and they need to find alternatives. And we happen to be a fantastic alternative. And so is Westinghouse. It's selling a turnkey solution, Grant. That's what I like about this and what you guys, I think, saw in this. In addition to, of course, the geopolitical dynamics and the Intergoatom transaction obviously is very supplemental to the Westinghouse deal. You talked about de-risking of cash flows. That adds to the blue chip nature of Cameco and what you guys are trying to bolt on to what already is quite a good blue chip, but even better now, which attracts, of course, another class of investors, which we'll, we'll come back to that on another subject a little bit later and appreciate you covering that off and why it makes sense here. Even today, Grant, there remains this belief among some a few silly parties out there that are just quite laughable, but another conversation. There's a belief that full production from the majors, let's call it the Cameco's, the Casata Proms, and Oranos of the world, and of course, the other state-sponsored um, producers that are out there, will bring a balance or even a surplus to the market. And it can be done quickly and for a modest sum of money. To me, that math still doesn't add up after multiple attempts at trying to tweak the data. Giving your understanding of the market as well as the challenging work to bring back a production center like MacArthur River, what do you think about that thought that somehow this can, can get balanced and surplus with the existing incumbents? I would agree with your comment that the math simply does not work. And why doesn't it work? It, it doesn't work because after years of very low uranium prices, we do not have the global primary productive stack in a position to respond quickly enough to this demand. Nobody's been investing. Yeah, okay, look, there's a lot of projects out there that are being pitched with a lot of hyper promotion, but go visit those sites. 
there, there's not a body of work going on at, at any of these potential new producers that would suggest to me that the supply side of our business is poised to respond that rapidly and it just is going to require higher prices in order to finally get the the investment underwriting uh, of the risk of developing a new asset and oftentimes i hear people say okay but this is the uranium business it's never been just about primary supply there's always secondary supply that fills the gap okay let's stop and have a look at that space Secondary supply has played a major role in our industry over the years, no question. But what does it look like today? Well, quite frankly, we have never seen this low of secondary supply potential uh, at any point in our industry since Eisenhower's too cheap to meter statement. And why is that? Well, we've gone through a period post Fukushima where utilities have not been at replacement rate contracting. So, you know, consuming around 180 million pounds a year. Um, there were some years, I think 14 or 2015, they only bought 30 million pounds of uranium under contract. Last year, everybody took notice and said that was a big year last year, 114 million pounds in the term contracting market. It's still way below replacement rate. So by definition, utilities have been consuming more than they've been buying to replace. So the gap's been filled from something. And that something has been the chewing through some of these stubborn inventories. There's no enricher underfeed in the market anymore competing with natural uranium. A, a huge source of secondary supply was the Russian HEU agreement, which ended in 2013. Uh, the Russians continued to be a source of secondary supply. Guess what? They're not going to be a source of secondary supply going forward. And then on top of that, as you see, country after country re-embrace nuclear power as a solution to both clean energy and uh, energy security. You're not only seeing a resistance to consider their inventories as excess, they're looking to build more. I mean, look at the United States. You got the United States now talking about a strategic uranium reserve. And we can have a conversation about whether that's a good idea or not. I personally don't think it is, but you've got a, a complete reversal in the view of, of whether there's enough inventory for uranium. So again, here's the good news. We're at the early innings of a term contracting cycle. We've got a massive stock of uncovered requirements ahead of us. We've begun to contract more, but we're not even at replacement rate yet. We have to be above replacement rate before we're even remotely talking about building new inventories. And we're at the highest uranium price we've ever been at in this term of the cycle. So I would just remind folks that in 06, 07, when there was a supply shock driven by the flooding at the Cigar Lake Mine Development Project, there was still about 250 million pounds of uranium in the HEU deal. Like there was a massive block of secondary supplies available to the market. And we still saw a very significant contracting security of supply and price response. This time, we've got nothing that resembles that kind of inventory of mobile secondary supply. So the math doesn't work on primary production. The math doesn't work on secondary supply. This is as constructive of a setup as it's ever been. 
it's a simple matter of undercapitalized, underpriced, understaffed grant, broken capacity and lack of infrastructure, without a doubt. And one of the things you said earlier brings me to this next thought is that we've seen best foot forward companies out there produce some pretty large promises, unlikely development schedules, and even making things look better than they are by loading MPV forward. Chemical is in a unique position because it could generally sit back and watch these narratives and in some cases fallacies play out. But you've seen a lot of these games. How do you look at the junior sector with the reality that tier one assets are not simply promised and promoted and not simply discovered and declared? Credit to you. Yeah, it's a great question. And let me start with the point that like any industry, uranium needs a vibrant junior space. It needs those folks who will uh, look at properties and look at trends and look at geological characteristics with a different twist than a major would, and that have access to capital and will throw more capital at a project than a major would as they try to distribute it across more of a balanced portfolio. That is absolutely essential to the health of the nuclear fuel cycle going forward. We need a vibrant junior industry. But in some ways, we also need an absolutely honest junior industry as well. Because can you imagine what the market might look like if if instead of folks coming and saying, we've got a we've got resources in the ground and, and we're going to get permits at record time frames that have never been seen before in the nuclear industry. And we're going to bring projects on faster than have ever been brought on in the mining industry. And we're going to do that at costs lower than the mining industry has ever seen. And despite what's gone on with supply chains and inflation, we're not subject to it. Instead of saying that, collectively, the junior space said to the industry, new projects are really hard. They take time. The, the regulations are time consuming and the supply chain challenges and inflation, we're not immune to it. So, oh, by the way, uranium prices still need to be a lot higher than they are today in order for us to go ahead with our projects. Instead, we've got a group out there that are like racing each other to utilities that they can produce for free. And oh, by the way, they'll effectively give it away in the spot market because they don't need to bother, their, their costs will be so low, they don't need to bother with term contracts. Unfortunately, some utilities hear that and they say, well, you know, some engineers stamp that plan, so it must be true. You know, so, yes, we need a vibrant industry, but we need a vibrant industry that's honest about the market structure and the challenges. A uranium producer has to get two variables right at the same time. They have to get volume right. They have to bring on a project on time, on budget, just like any other mining project. But they have to get timing right. Because when you show up with a project and you've got production and you haven't done anything with respect to building homes for that production, you're now subject to the spot price. And just go back to previous cycles, find some names that were uranium producers that don't exist today, and just ask yourself, what happened there? Well, they got the timing wrong. They got the volume right, they got the timing wrong. And so looking ahead, it seems like most mature folks in this industry have learned their lessons. I go to industry conferences all the time and I hear Arano and I hear Kazadamprom and I hear Converdine and I hear Urenco 
just across the nuclear fuel cycle, everybody consistently saying what we've been saying for years, which is, as a utility, you need to contract for that productive capacity. You need to put your procurement cycle in play. We build the homes and then we produce. So the majors are all saying that, but then you have this group that are saying, no, we're going to do everything differently. And, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to break any historical trends and we're going to set records that have never been set in the mining industry. And we're, we're going to produce for so cheaply that we could just dump it into the spot market anyway. And it's, it's absolutely the wrong message. So we need a vibrant junior space, but we need a, a junior space that's honest with what it takes to get volume and timing right. Enough said, Grant. I appreciate that. And that captures all of it really well. And I think it just comes down at the end to real understanding of this market doing the work, real operatorship, and of course, stewardship. I want to move briefly over to the Kazataprom joint venture. We know this relationship has had a number of challenges the last couple of years, and of course, post the Russia-Ukraine war. But Grant, talk about your longer-term interest in this region. Kazakhstan has been uh, a country that Cameco has been involved in for decades. And I think probably fair to say we got into Kazakhstan at a time when there was awareness of a, a terrific resource base discovered by the Russians in the 50s, but the Kazakhs themselves didn't really know how to mine, mill, or market uranium. All these years later, they're a heck of a lot better at all three of those things. So no surprise, the relationship has evolved because Adamprom is a formidable supplier uh, of uranium. They're, they're like the they're not a participant in the fuel cycle the way we are, but they are a formidable supplier of uranium. There's no doubt about it. And they have very good assets and very strong production, and they've proven to be very resilient. So we give them full credit as a partner uh, for you know, dealing with very substantial challenges that have occurred just in the last 18 months. The, the, the predicament they find themselves in with respect to proximity and historical intertie with Russia at a, at, at a time when the when when sanctioned when uh, you know commercial decisions to avoid Russia hit them as well as they try to disentangle. So we give them full credit for dealing admirably with those challenges. One of those challenges has been not just securing the supplies to keep production going, and you've seen them put out disclosure to say that there continues to be significant risk to that, but it's the challenge of then getting production out of the country in a way that avoids using and Russian ports. Uh, with respect to the latter, the good news is, because Adamprom has moved product out the so-called Trans-Caspian route, we're sort of one in three quarter shipments done. You know, The first one's already made it to Blind River, the second one has made it across Kazakhstan, through the Caspian, across Azerbaijan, across Georgia, and is sitting in the port of Poti waiting to, to set sail on the Black Sea. So we're sort of one and three quarter shipments through. So yes, it works eventually, but no, it's not established and predictable yet. Uh, in some ways, this isn't a bad outcome. You know, we know we're going to get our share of production eventually. And we can manage the time because we have other sources of production. We have inventory. We have long-term purchase commitments that we can utilize. So it's actually just a, a, a timing issue for us. But for the broader fuel cycle, 
it is a very stark reminder that these are not risk-free pounds that we're buying. They're at risk on the front end with respect to just the reliability of supply because of the supply chain challenges. They're at risk on the back end because of the logistics of just getting that material into Western facilities. So, you know, in, in some ways, I don't mind that the route works, but it's not repeatable and fully established because we get the benefit of the production eventually, but it's a reminder that there's a lot of risk here. And I think it drives even more interest back to MacArthur and Cigar. And it continues to drive this market in terms of another challenge, yet another issue on the supply chain, on the logistics side of things. Um, just one follow-up question to credit an audience member, Grant. Talk specifically about that cost difference, such as using an alternative route, such as Trans-Caspian. Talk about, if you can, who might cover those extra costs, Grant, and if you can share that, maybe potentially on a per-pound basis for the transportation logistics increases. In general, contracts are different. In some cases, a contract might have the supplier covering the transportation cost, and in others, it might be the customer. In a third example, it might be a bit of both. So I, I wouldn't say there's a general rule of thumb, and, and I can't speak for Kazadaprom. I don't know what their eventual sales contracts look like in terms of who takes on that cost. There's no doubt that either the Trans-Caspian route or, you know, we, we've even heard about the idea of moving it, transshipping it across China, or even flying it out are all more expensive. But in terms of the overall transportation cost, remember, our products move around the planet in pounds, not tons. It's actually not sort of the, the burden on transportation that some would think. So maybe what would have been a transportation cost of a buck and a half or two bucks a kgu to move uranium around out of central asia through the russian route well maybe it's three or 350 a kgu now so it's not a so far a substantial increase it's the uncertainty of the timing of the material arriving that's creating a bigger problem very well grant i appreciate that and it's negotiable partners can work together to work out those issues as we deal with these extraordinary circumstances on another subject here Tim, you and Sean and the team at Cameco are in the midst of a major M&A transaction with the Coors Brookfield Westinghouse, as prior discussed. You've seen some uranium segment M&A over the past couple of years. What are your thoughts on M&A in this segment so far? And will Cameco become active with respect to the segment M&A that we're seeing uh, in specifically the uranium side? What any investor in any company wants to know is, did the management team learn from past cycles? And, and what I'll say is the past cycle that we went through, the 0607 window, um, there were a lot of valuable lessons there. And one of the valuable lessons was uh, supply discipline. And I would say extreme supply discipline is absolutely crucial so that you're prepared to meet the next cycle from brownfield leverage. So we're just in a very unique position where our tier one assets, like put Rabbit Lake and put our U.S. assets aside for a moment. Our tier one assets alone have an upside case of 32 million pounds per year for Cameco's account. We produced 11 last year. We have an incredible amount of brownfield leverage to meet this growth. This is production that only attracts 
replacement and maintenance capital. There's no greenfield dollars required to get there. If prices discovered a level that incented us to go back to Rabbit Lake or the US, then we're up to about 38 million pounds, Cameco's account. We are not in an acquisitive mood. We, we don't need to buy anything. We, we chose instead to leave pounds in the ground during the last low cycle. We started that process when uranium was $17 a pound. That's a pretty good investment that we made in the quality of our portfolio and has now put us in an incredible position in that we can meet this demand. We don't have to build a new mine like we did last time with Cigar Lake. And between tier one and tier two, we've got a lot of leverage there. And, and that's our focus right now. Aside from there, one of the things we don't talk about a lot, because the market, we don't think that fuel buyers really need to hear this at the moment. We've got an incredible exploration portfolio. We, we think it's the best in the business because most of it is adjacent to brownfield infrastructure. Again, tying into this notion of brownfield leverage. Uh, so we've put ourselves in a very strong position where, where we can benefit from this growth and it doesn't require any greenfield. In terms of the broader industry, not surprised to see some M&A going on, not to see some consolidation going on. I think it makes sense. We've got a lot of, we've got a lot of small projects that are being pitched really aggressively, but the reality is th they're not company makers. We look at some of these projects and uranium is no different than a lot of mining. It's, it's denominator at the end of the day that matters. You need hundreds of millions of pounds in the denominator of a discovery to contemplate a greenfield mine and mill. And, and that, that's just math. That, that's not my opinion. That's just math. So, you know, 40 million pounds, 60 million pounds, even at a nice high grade, that's okay, but that's not a company maker. So, so no surprise to see consolidation going on. But as I said at the beginning, and I, and I just need to emphasize now, because we don't in our business produce for a spot market, we don't produce for a smelter or a metals exchange, you actually need to see a consolidation that has a credible development strategy, a consolidation whose development strategy includes a milling strategy, not just a mining strategy, but mills are hard to come by. So you got to have a credible milling strategy. And then you have to have a credible marketing strategy. So you've, you've got to put together all three. What's your mine plan? What's your mill plan? What's your market plan? Because that's the only way you're really meaningfully going to capture value. So no surprise to see consolidation, but this is the first step. There, there now needs to be a real mature strategy around how some of these projects are going to create long-term durable value you know, and be there when the demand is requiring those pounds versus showing up with productive capacity that nobody needs because the contracting cycle is finished for the short term. Well said, Grant. Yeah, I can think of a few examples there, but let's not digress into uh, license capacity and <laughs> likely never gets used. But anyway, two divisions of M&A out there at the end of the day, and, and this really is M&A for the sake of M&A. And then there's the real meaningful M&A that actually has a sound strategy behind it. Let me follow in with this as it's a little bit related, but not necessarily because of what you said about brownfield uh, potential and exploration assets that you already have. As the contract book gets full 
at the tier one producing assets grant. What is next with respect to uranium project development, assuming market conditions are favorable on term price? Of course, we expect that they will be. And also, what do you think at that point would it take to start dusting off this projects, as well as the thinking that eventually replacement of pounds in some form must be on the radar? Yeah, it does begin. Step number one, obviously, is the tier ones, bringing back the capacity that we already have. It's already licensed. It's already permitted. It's already proven. Again, tier one producers are proven. They're not promised. So bringing that back is priority number one. So uh, we're going to ramp up MacArthur River this year to 15 million pounds on a 100% basis on its way to 18. We're going to keep Cigar at 18. Um, JV and Kai is still subject to Adam Prom's supply discipline 20% this year, and then we'll reevaluate that going forward. I already spoke about the upside case of just those three assets alone. If we upsize those three, then uh, then we'd have 32 million pounds per year. But what's key to understanding that is we don't front run demand with supply. We layer in the homes, and when we layer in the homes, we then turn to the operating units and say, this is what we need in order for production. So you, nobody has to worry that because Cameco is increasing production, the market's going to be in surplus. We only increase production when demand has already been discovered for us. So it doesn't harm future demand. After that, it really is the tier twos like we talked about. So we would have a good look at the already licensed, already permitted Rabbit Lake, a good look look at the U.S. assets again, already licensed, already permitted, no greenfield required there. Step three for us would be to look at, okay, what's the next resource that we would need to develop that leverages brownfield? So just as a bias, probably something on the east side of the Athabasca Basin that can leverage existing mills. If you have a greenfield investment, but only the mine is greenfield, and you can leverage a brownfield mill, that's a really good value driver. So that would sort of be step number three for us. And then step number four would be when we're truly in the world of thinking greenfield mine, greenfield mill, maybe our assets in Western Australia. But here's the key point. We're decades away from having to do that because of the brownfield leverage we have from the tier one alone. So uh, we're just all backed up by a resource and a reserve base that totals uh, over a billion pounds together. Uh, sorry, I'm not supposed to add those together, but I guess I just did. It, it all speaks to we've positioned ourselves to not have to greet this growth in the industry by starting a whole bunch of greenfield projects at the same time, especially in this supply chain and inflationary environment, especially in this heightened regulatory environment. Uh, this is all on purpose. Appreciate that, Grant. Let's keep moving here. I appreciate the time. This is a, a great conversation. want to get into a few other items here before we wrap up. Cameco is likely viewed by most as a company that can come in to just about any jurisdiction and get things done from exploration to a mine, which is a lot of work. Talk about the importance of jurisdiction and in the view of Cameco, what jurisdictions will remain to be the focus for Cameco when it comes to putting cake in a can in the future? Yeah, good question. There are resources, attractive resources in a lot of different jurisdictions for sure. The jurisdictions, no surprise, we like Canada. We're very comfortable in Canada. We were very comfortable as an operator in the United States, you know, with Westinghouse 
our U.S. story has just gotten bigger, not smaller. With GLE, our U.S. story is front and center. So we're very comfortable in those two jurisdictions. Despite the challenges, we're very comfortable in Kazakhstan. We have a couple of projects in Western Australia that we're very comfortable with. That's a very attractive mining jurisdiction. Now, right now, uranium's not in favor, but uh, we're patient and we think over time it probably will be in Western Australia. But what's really important for us, and I think um, investors to understand, is nuclear is different. It, it, you know, uranium does not escape the nuclear overhang. And so there's a stewardship that's required in our industry that, that isn't in a lot of other industries. And so when we think about moving out globally into other jurisdictions, we have at Cameco what's called a home country control. So we take what we do here in Canada, and that becomes our footprint for how we'll operate in other jurisdictions, unless other jurisdictions have higher standards than Canada does. In other words, what we won't do, what we can't do, is go into jurisdictions where maybe the, the labor regulations or the nuclear oversight or the environmental standards are lower and view that as a competitive advantage, we will never do that. We will come in with a home country control model. That's what we did in Kazakhstan. I think in the early days of investing in Kazakhstan, it was frustrating for our partner that we were bringing in all of these sort of Canadian ESG standards. But I think today, because Adam Prom might tell you that the best joint venture in Kazakhstan is JV Inkai, and it's the model that they want all the others to move toward uh, in this ESG world. So we're comfortable in a lot of different jurisdictions as long as we can be Cameco in those jurisdictions. What you'll never see us doing to exploit different standards or lower standards in other jurisdictions. We would never do that. You know, and, and don't think it, it's because of a lack of experience. I mean, don't forget Tim Gitzel, prior to coming over Cameco, ran the mining business unit of Areva at the time, which had an extensive asset base in the United States in Central Asia and all through Africa. So we've got a lot of experience, but we've got enough to tell us that to prosper in our business, where ESG standards are rising, where those kind of expectations on companies are only going up, we have to go and we have to be Cameco with a home country control model. And that really biases us towards Canada, the US, Australia, the parts of Central Asia that we're comfortable with. And we're a little more reserved on some of the other jurisdictions. Well said, and uh, I want to touch on a few things that you said there in a little bit more conversation here. But first, you mentioned GLE. Talk about the chemical investment into laser enrichment. What progress do you see that's really needed on this front to advance the technology, including maybe things like certain price conditions, regulatory approvals? Just briefly, what are your thoughts on that? Enrichment is the part of the fuel cycle that Cameco's always wanted to be in. And, and will always want to be in. It's just absolutely crucial for all those vertical integration reasons that I talked about when you asked about the Westinghouse transaction. So let me just say boldly, we're coming into the enrichment space. <laughs> exactly how we come into the enrichment space is probably still up for grabs a little bit, but GLE right now is our chosen approach. After years of trying to acquire market share in second generation centrifuge technology, we could just never make the math work. We could never find our way to get into that business at a valuation that left enough reward for our owners. So we pivoted and we said, let's explore our way into third generation enrichment technology. We're a mining company. We're used to exploring. 
let's explore our way into this technology. So in 2008, we, we began uh, investing in global laser enrichment. At that time, it was a down the fairway commercial SWU producer, right? Up to 5% for the for the, the light water reactor fuel chain. After Fukushima, there was no white space for additional enrichment capacity. In fact, enrichers were doing massive amounts of underfeeding and making of natural uranium available to the market and becoming a big competitor to a uranium company. Uh, we parked that project. And what we did is we pivoted to focus on an ESG project, a liability management project, which was the depleted UF6 gas owned by the US government that needs a solution. And the solution was to re-enrich it back to natural UF6 and make it available to the market. An incredible US origin story. It's, you know, it's US uranium, but it's already converted. So it, it's also a conversion plant at that point. And so we, we've been working on that project for a number of years. And then along comes the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the understanding that not only does Russia have the stranglehold, 40% of global enrichment uh, capacity is in the hands of the Russians, but 100% of commercial Hali-U capacity is in the hands of the Russians. And so at a time when the world is embracing advanced nuclear reactors, the traditional reactor fleet, we absolutely now need a Western alternative. So GLE is now being positioned not only as this ESG liability management project to deal with the depleted UF6 gas, but it can be a commercial swoop provider to, to provide services to existing customers uh, in, the in the mainstream commercial space. It can also do the HALIU fuel, the, the enrichment to HALIU. So it, it can do all three and it, it, it provides supplier and technology diversity. And, and that's a really important concept here. You've got Western governments that are saying, Russia, and we don't open the gates to China. Then in the enrichment space, we're really focused only on Urenco and Arano. But by the way, they co-own the same technology. So that's not a technology diversification. They use the exact same technology from the exact same platform. So GLE comes along and it's not only supplier diversification, but it's technology diversification at a time when enrichment is so critical to fulfilling the carbon and energy security objectives going forward. So it's a very exciting project. We, we've got a great partner. The, the technologists themselves, Silex, are our partner in that. And we just think it has so much potential. But make no mistake, this is a nuclear industry investment. And it's just going to take time. You, you, you move it forward. In, in, a, in, a, in a very systematic way to prove up the technology. And just like the uranium segment and just like the conversion segment, you don't build an enrichment plant and then start knocking on everybody's door and saying, you wanna buy some enrichment service? You build it as you build the homes for it, as you attract the support case. You know, as the U.S. government decides it needs HALIU, as the U.S. government decides it needs access to commercial swoop, as utilities decide they need a supplier and technology diversification and therefore help underwrite those investments. You don't go ahead in, in our industry and make all those investments and then just be the big disruptor showing up and jamming stuff into the market. You have to get volume and timing right in enrichment, just like you do 
in uranium, and that's how we're approaching it. Grant, I appreciate that, and uh, certainly we know about people trying to jam things into this market. Of course, it doesn't seem to work that well. The regulatory bit is absolutely is going to take some time, and definitely excited to see this come through in a period where just it's incredible. You have to sit back and scratch your head here and say, how did we get into this debacle with respect to Western capacity in the fuel cycle? Unbelievable, really. But anyway, here we are. It definitely is uh, an interesting market maker here. Cameco has legacy joint ventures and positions in equity of some juniors out there, mostly from the last uranium cycle. As you know, some of these companies, Grant, have lived off the coattails of promoting a legacy Cameco JV. How does the company now view the junior interest at this stage? And obviously, there's some good ones. But does it still fit with the company ambitions at this point, Grant? Well, I think you've seen in the past uh, couple of years, we, we've exited some of those historical joint ventures, um, have chosen to, uh, to to liquidate any shares we had in there. Because of this issue that I talked about earlier, our, our own portfolio is is really very good. And, and we just didn't need a toehold in some of those projects. You know, going forward, uh, as I say, we've got this multi-step strategy growing demand that begins by focusing on our own tier ones, then focusing on our tier twos, and then our third stage development projects that leverage Brownfield. And, and we do that from a very big exploration portfolio. And it all just suggests to us that, you know, we're not desperate to find additional resources and we'll continue to see what others do to bring their projects along and, uh, you know, keep a, a pretty watchful eye on that. But I don't see us requiring any big partnerships in that space. We have the infrastructure, we have the facilities, we have the mill, and we have the resource base to stay very well disciplined and drive as much value to our owners as we possibly can from the pounds we already own and we already know. Grant, I want to get into talent transfer for a moment. And of course, this will slide a bit into sustainability, which you already covered a little bit of that. Some participants out there still lack the understanding that this is one of the most difficult things in this market is having people with the capability to successfully put pounds in the can and get them to the converter. Talk about how this impacts the market and what Cameco is doing, at least in a small part or Cameco's part, helping to transfer wisdom to younger motivated people that have the talent to actually add value to an industry and also the companies they work for to sustain this business. Yeah, absolutely. At all, you know, uh, when when you talk about your your asset base, obviously people are the key there because uh, you know resources in the ground don't just seep their way to surface and find their way into a drum and then ultimately into a comprehensive marketing program. So for us, we've always had a focus on talent development. We're we're here in Saskatoon, head office. We've got a, a few different operations down down east. Obviously, like I said with respect to how we approach foreign jurisdictions from a home country control model. We have a homegrown model with respect to talent development. And, and of course, look across the industry. Look at, look at how many people leading uranium projects right now in the industry. The first thing they talk about is their experience with Cameco. So we, we know that, that doing a tour through Cameco creates really important credence factors for those who then go on to run other projects. And, you know, for, for me, it, I, I often chuckle when companies start with, well, you know, our, this person and that person, they were with Cameco for many years and then the pitch is immediately, but we're going to do everything different than Cameco used to do. And we're going to do it so much better and so, so much smarter and so much quicker. And it's like, well, I'm not exactly sure how 
you plan on doing that when you when it's our people that that you're hiring who actually know the industry and they know the timeframes. So talent development is is really crucial. But embedded in there is a really important ESG story for Cameco. When we restarted MacArthur uh, and Key Lake, we were able to tap into a, a workforce, a very talented and very dedicated workforce that we'd been committed to for decades. As, as you know, we're Canada's largest industrial employer of Indigenous Canadians, especially when MacArthur and Key are back up and running. And so we, we've, been, we've been making those investments in the workforce. We've been making those investments in the supply chain. 80% of the goods and services that we procure for our northern operations in Saskatchewan, the vast majority of those owned by Indigenous Canadians. And as a result, when we restarted, we got that talent back. They wanted to come back and they wanted to work for us. So while we watch others struggle with skilled labor, we don't have those struggles in the same way. And it really is a payback of doing the right thing from an ESG perspective for so many decades. This is the benefit of those investments made for the right reason. I really appreciate your comments on this. And as you know, there's there just remains to be a lot of reluctant participants, more on the junior side within the management teams that who just don't have any regard for talent transfer initiatives. And many of them, of course, remain entrenched in enrichment for themselves, et cetera. And they just don't see the big picture or really have a better approach for what works for all key parties. And Grant, I'm just happy to say that you're actually one of the younger guys in this sector, and it's a pleasure to have you stay for the long term. Following on to that, what experience would you extend to investors who are considering investments in maybe not the majors or the majors are part of that, but also the junior sector? What should they look for and also possibly avoid? Yeah, I was uh, I was recently at a uh, investor conference with Tim. Uh, we were down at the Bank of Montreal conference, uh, which is a big mining and metals conference, of course. And and one of our uh, investor one-on-ones, Tim made a comment that. Uh, that I thought was was super interesting. And he talked about during the height of the 06, 07 price spike at one point, and he was with Arriva at the time, but their corporate development team had added up. There were 400 plus uranium companies that were going to develop uranium projects. And then, of course, that number went down to like 10 or 15 uh, post Fukushima. And the reason I raise that is because I think it's important to ask ourselves, you know, where where are the new entrants that that should have come into the market and what are the lessons to be learned? And the lessons come back to what I talked about earlier. To be a durable uranium producer, you have to get volume right. You have to deliver on a project just like everybody else did. And we had our fair share of projects and we we had our fair share of challenges with projects, which really inform our view on how long these things actually take and how much they actually cost. But then you have to get timing right, because some of those uranium companies in the last price cycle, they got volume right, and they started producing material. But because they didn't have a home for it, yes, they might have enjoyed a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months of high prices in the spot market, but it actually was their uncommitted supply constantly hitting the spot market that just continued to drive the price down and down and down and they rode a spot market up and they rode it all the way back down into oblivion and and where are those projects now well they're in the hands of state-owned enterprises look at the namibian production it's basically all chinese now now there's some exciting projects there for the future 
but the, the state-owned enterprises took advantage of those juniors who came along with a volume strategy, but did not have a timing strategy, did not have a viable marketing strategy. And to avoid being the investor who's the last one holding, <laughs> holding the share when the music stops, it's fair to ask these teams, what is your strategy for delivering a project? And what is your strategy for delivering the project into the market? Are you actually meeting a demand right now? Or are you going to show up and put pounds into the market? Doesn't need your material. And therefore, you're just going to drive the price down. And all I've done is taken money out of my pocket and put it in the pocket of the utilities. So there's a very important lesson to be learned there. Here's the good news. As we're at this early stage of the cycle, we just see more and more investors who fundamentally understand this. They're not persuaded by the carnival barkers who will tell you, no, you know, build up a mine, but just wait for the spot price to hit $70 and then sell it all. Well, okay, you might sell 100,000 pounds at $70 and you might even sell 200,000 pounds at $70. But if you built a 5 million pound mine, you're going to sell 100,000 pounds per week through the spot market. So you're going to take it from 70 to what? 30? as you consistently dump material. If you build a 25 million pound mine and your strategy is spot market, you're gonna sell 500,000 pounds per week through the spot. That is just a value destruction. Most investors that we come across, they get it this time. They've learned that lesson that this isn't about encouraging and underwriting production that's just gonna destroy value. It's about encouraging production that's going to capture the long tail of value that comes in this business when you can take a quick move at a commodity price and lock it in to a long-term contract that's attractive for investors i don't have anything further to add to that so let's move on here grant that's well said uh talk just briefly just as we wrap up here grant again thank you for the time talk just briefly about the strength of chemical from a financial position and its ability moving forward to cash flow build its pipeline and of course some pro forma thinking here with respect to Westinghouse of course on a cost adjusted basis the period that we were just through post fukushima uranium price getting down to $17 a pound was the lowest effective price commercial industry has ever seen and we came through that with 1.5 billion dollars on the balance sheet and the billion dollar undrawn revolver. It begins with marketing, having a strategically aligned marketing strategy. From that, you determine your operationally flexible production strategy, and you have to back it up by a risk managed financial discipline. You have to back it up by conservative financial decisions that actually understand how long the cycles can be in this industry. So right now we're in a very advantageous position in that we've come through the toughest part of the market. We're in the early innings of a contracting cycle. We're capturing forward demand on market related terms. We're benefiting from having the only operating conversion plant in North America at a time when conversion prices have never been higher. And we're seeing the recovery in the uranium and the fuel services segment as a result. And now we're adding on even more de-risk cash flows from the Westinghouse uh, acquisition, putting us into a very strong business case going forward. So as we exit extreme supply discipline, then we can start to visit the capital allocation questions that if we have this much brownfield leverage, what's the CapEx requirement? Are there any growth investments 
after that, well, we've talked about GLE, but we've talked about timing it right and getting the right support in order to advance it. You know, and then that ultimately arrives at, okay, we've, we've maintained a very strong cash position and we maintained our investment grade rating uh, through the whole cycle at a time when financial performance is returning. So, so then we'll look at our, our dividend policy. We've historically been a dividend player. I mean, don't, while I'm in the CFO chair, don't look to us to be a, a yield play for sure, but there's a certain dividend component there. So watch for us to revisit that. And then ultimately ask the question, do we have the right denominator of outstanding shares? And, and you know, is there, do we take excess financial capacity and allocate it that way? We're now entering that window where we've gone through the toughest market this we, we've ever seen in a very strong position with a growth orientation. So we're excited about what that can mean for our investors going forward. That ties in with what I was going to ask you here on the dividend bit. I think you and I can have a bit of an argument on that in terms of you have to look at the valuation. You have to look at the investments and the recapitalization of the assets and what's best suited for that capital, of course, uh, resulting in best return for investors. But then there's, of course, the consistent dividend, especially now where Cameco is headed, uh, certainly with this Westinghouse deal and the de-risk cash flows, as you stated, Grant, consistent dividend that a certain class of investors, the income-oriented groups out there that seek to receive a consistent dividend, I think that opens the window even more so to another group of investors out there that would look at chemical and say, you know, this is great. They've got steady cash flows. They've got potential growth here. Uh, this is a beautiful one for me to have in my portfolio for dividend purposes. Um, no argument there. No argument there, Andrew. In fact, we're in, we're in violent agreement on that one. We, even when <laughs> we were in extreme supply discipline, even when we were in extreme supply discipline and we cut our dividend, we did not cut it to zero for the reasons that you just described. And as we bring on more de-risk cash flow and earnings, it will give us more opportunity to have that more consistent return. Let me just add to the investor piece that you already flagged. It's not theoretical about a new class of investor being interested. Since the Westinghouse announcement, our initiation or origination has never been higher at Cameco. The, the amount of new inbounds that we're getting has never been higher. And really what we're seeing is a, a resource investor who is now being triggered to say, I need to understand this nuclear fuel cycle because there's value there that comes back to the uranium space, you know, if somebody truly is integrated. And then it's an energy investor who is very comfortable investing in our customers like Constellation and Duke who are saying, Oh, wow, this Westinghouse announcement's really interesting. I need to work my way upstream through the nuclear fuel cycle and understand because, you know, I just I thought it was a commodity, but it's not. It's sold under long term contracts with inflation linked indicators. I like those. I mean, I'm an energy investor. By definition, I like those. And then it's the, the third party is the generalist who is showing up, who has never really poked their nose into nuclear, let alone the fuel cycle. And then we're sort of going alpha to omega with them from uranium uh, exploration all the way through to SMRs and the role they can play. Uh, so that body of work is massive. And what it does is it creates a greater set of expectations on capital allocation, like you just said. Yeah, this adds to the brand. It adds to the blue chip nature of the company. And I think 
maybe this isn't a perfect analogy, Grant, but forgive me for my chocolate craving here, but, you know, is this the Hershey company of the uh, fuel cycle services sector? So it is very attractive. And of course, you guys seem to be gearing it this way. And I think that can provide a lot of attraction for a lot of parties out there. Well, look, Grant, we could keep talking, but for the sake of time, let's leave it there. One more time, if you'd like, for all types of investors out there listening, Cameco has a market capitalization of about 12 billion US dollars today. Why should Cameco be a part of an investment portfolio? Whether you, you buy the, the clean energy trade, the energy security trade, the ESG, the demand and supply, whatever binds you into the, into the uranium space in the nuclear fuel cycle, you know, just, just take time to cross those dimensions. We are a tier one producer who is proven. This isn't a matter of us making giant promises to the market. We actually mine, mill and market this stuff and send it all over the world and have for decades. We are a proven producer with assets that are demonstrated. You know, we just didn't make a discovery and declare it to be better than anybody else's. These are assets that are demonstrated reliable producers with an ESG performance that we think really is second to none. I mean, folks have ESG strategies on a go forward basis. We've got decades of ESG performance that back it up. So for a variety of reasons, when, when people get excited about nuclear like they should be, and they get excited about opportunities in the fuel cycle like they should be, and they get excited about the fundamental imbalance in uranium like they should be, they should have a look at us because nobody's better positioned to take advantage of all of that than we are. Grant, best way for the audience to reach out to Cameco? Yeah, certainly we've got an investor relations portal. We try to get to any inquiries as quickly as possible and we're very accessible. I mean, you know, reach out, we'd, we'd love to talk to you. And certainly we'll, we'll always tell folks what the world looks like through our eyes. And I think the past shows that our view tends to be the right one. Very well. And Cameco.com for those who need to get to a place for that contact info. Grant, thanks again for the time. Appreciate it. Looking forward to catching up again soon. Thank you, Andrew.